All right, our opening reading is just going to be four verses from Exodus chapter 14. If you look to verses 1 to 4, God's word says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. In verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh, and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. This is the word of the Lord. I'm hoping I can pronounce that word just one more time as we read uh, through the passage. I watched a couple pronunciation videos uh, this morning, but it might change every time I read it. Who knows? Uh, What story, as we come to this crossing of the Red Sea, is more iconic within the Old Testament than that which we come to on this day? Uh, Most everybody knows of this story and God's miraculous deliverance of his people, the parting of the Red Sea, the final deliverance of the Israelites from their enemies, their enemies in pursuit of them or the Egyptians. Uh, this section of Exodus brings us to a what we would call a paradigm shift within their life. Things are going to change uh, forever insofar as Israel's life and relationship with God will never be the same. The Red Sea crossing creates uh, the shift from redemption. So we've seen history leading up to this point, and now the rest of the book of Exodus is going to begin to turn and focus on how the Israelites will live now as God's holy and set-apart people. We'll begin to see the law become to emerge as God reveals that to them. Now, placing ourselves into the account before us, the the Israelites are faced with a problem, right? They're faced with the problem. brings us to our first point. The problem is, is they're at, they're at a dead end. The Israelites are at a dead end. It makes no sense where God has positioned them unless he has some sort of great plan, which we know the ending of the story. We know he has some sort of great plan to save them. But at, in this moment, the Israelites are caught in a dead end. Continuing on in verse 5 uh, to 12. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. I want to pause there for a second. The the chariot is the thing that the Israelites feared the most from the Egyptians. They had these advanced chariots. It was really a symbol of power and military might. Uh, This will come into play a little bit later in the story this morning. So just kind of file the chariot away. And took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly. Rightly so, right? They're caught between the sea and this enemy that they have. And the people of, the Lord, of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, 
Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. God has led his people to a a peculiar place from a human standpoint. They've made a huge strategic military mistake. Those of you who are military buffs, you know that, that an army should never place itself between a wall, basically the sea behind them, and a pursuing military force coming at them with no planned route of escape. There's nowhere for them to go. An army must never place itself in a box and closed in. But we know that God has them right where he wants them. And he has the Egyptians right where he wants them. In the Israelites' minds, Moses and God have ultimately led them to a dead end. And they they quite literally process it in this manner. They're basically saying, we're as good as dead. Is this why you brought us out of Egypt? Because there's no graves? And we have to admit a bit of humor there, don't we? There's no graves in Egypt? I mean, what is Egypt known for? Pyramids, right? What is housed in the pyramids but the bodies of the dead? What the Israelites were likely helping build as being enslaved people was tombs and monuments for the dead. And yet they complain that there are no graves in Egypt when that's what Egypt is known for. But we know this, that God has them right where he wants them. And so we're going to look at now the solution. We have the problem, a dead end. They're caught in a dead end. Now the solution. Solution is this. Fear not. Stand firm. Be silent. Go forward. And then lastly, fill this in. Have faith. Have faith. Fear not. Stand firm. Be silent. Go forward. Have faith. If you look to the screens, verses 13 to 15. The people of God are crying out here. And Moses responds. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see, this is beautiful, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, your enemy, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Did you hear that? The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. This is Moses comforting his people. Then it says, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? I want to pause there for a second. I think Moses is getting a rebuke here as a representative of the people. We know that he is assuring the people. He's instructing them. And now God is rebuking Moses on behalf of Israel's response to him as they're crying out. And they're worried and they're scared as their back is against the sea and this army is pursuing them. It says, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Then he gives this command, tell the people of Israel to go forward. Tell the people of Israel to go 
forward. Now, I want to pause here within this passage. At this point in the story, we can make what I believe is a huge mistake in interpreting and applying the the situation at hand, which is the Red Sea account. This is the story of Israel's deliverance. God is delivering them from slavery, from tyranny, from evil, from death. A story that affects the way that they live and the way that they interact with the Lord. We'll see that later in Exodus. As they would have read this or or had this passage read to them, they would have looked back upon this, this history and they would have remembered all that God had done for them. In a similar way, Christian, we look back to the cross of, of Jesus and how the cross accomplished salvation for his people, which we have gathered here this morning, the people of God. A mistake can be made in applying this story back in the Exodus to this, to every instance of difficulty and suffering in life. And I think that that is a mistake. If we apply this incorrectly to every obstacle that we face, where we may feel boxed in with no hope, we miss the point of Exodus. This is the point of Exodus. That God saved a people who were destined to be enslaved, who were powerless, who were hopeless, who were, in a sense, as they've cried out earlier, as good as dead. God saved them. God intervened and saved their lives for His glory. So the Exodus account, as they are boxed into the Red Sea, is not a microcosm of any sort of difficulty that you come to in life. It is a picture of the redemption that you have received through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Every difficulty in life is not the, quote, Red Sea that you're faced with. The Red Sea that we are faced with was the chasm, the space that lay before our standing before a holy and perfect God. And the evil influence of this world that lures our sinful hearts from His mercy and grace. God has separated those waters for us through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. So let us view this story in light of this. Salvation, redemption, God's powerful, saving act of his people. He has won salvation for us at the cross, much like God won salvation for the Israelites at the shoreline of the Red Sea. And so Moses instructs the Israelites, fear not, stand firm, Be silent. Stop crying out. Calm down. And then God says, move forward. Move. I want to pause here for a second. At some point, we have to stop crying out to God. We have to stop praying. And God's saying, okay, the time to be on your knees is done. Stand up and move. Have you been there before? Let me pray about that. And God's saying, no, I answered it, and my answer is this, move, 
Go where I have to stop praying and go. Prayer is a powerful tool. But at some point you have to move and you have to act and you have to walk in the ways that the Lord has set before you. But how could Moses be so certain? Because God is so good that he had already revealed to him this moment. If you'll remember back to Exodus 3, if you know Exodus 3, that's the point in which Moses meets God. He meets God in in a bush that burns but is not consumed. and, And God tells him that the sign will be this. The certainty of deliverance is this, Exodus 3, 11 and 12. Moses questions God. He says, says who am I that I should, I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, that is God, but I will be with you. Okay, we could just stop there and not read the rest. That's enough. But then he also says this, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. This is the sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's where the Israelites are heading. They're not there yet, but God's saying, the sign that I am with you is that I'm going to get you through this. I will make a way. Where there seems to be no way, I will work and there will be a way. God has them right where he wants them. We see, too, if we pull ourselves out of the story a little bit, some maturity now happening in the leadership of Moses. Some maturity beginning to emerge. Earlier in the story, Moses falls apart at the first sign of any sort of crazy things going on. Crying out to God. But now here, Moses is is the one calming people. With this, he gives them assurance that God will fulfill their promise. He doesn't know how it's going to work out, but he says, fear not, stand firm, quiet down, calm down. And I think we can draw some some application out of this for our lives. Christian, hopefully we are in relationships where we're discipling less mature Christians. Are you a voice of assurance? When things are tough in life, Are you a voice of assurance for those that you are investing into spiritually? Are you telling them, fear not, stand firm, the Lord's good. He's going to bring you through this. Someone is in the grips of such a a tragic situation that their their hope and faith is being rocked. Are are you telling them, no, your, your hope... And your future security is its secure in the Lord Jesus. He has this. He's filled you and sealed you with His Holy Spirit. He's promised your deliverance. Fear not. Stand firm. Be silent. Go forward. Have faith. But where's faith drawn from in this passage? Where do we get this concept of faith? Moses still has not witnessed how God will deliver them, but he remembers the promise of God from all the way back at the burning bush, right? God says, Moses, you will know that I have accomplished my will when I bring you out of Egypt, when I surely deliver my people. And belief in the promise of God requires what? Faith. 
Okay, here's another word. Trust. God, I trust you. I trust you. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us a, a great definition of faith. It says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Doesn't that fit this situation perfectly? Have faith. I've done all these things for you, Israel. I have this also. They have not seen how this is going to work out, but they have received a promise from the Almighty, capital A, the Almighty, that is backed up by all that He has done thus far. And as such, they can, as God commands, go forward, move, advance, move in faith and trust that God has this. So what is the outcome? We're going to look at four points this morning. What is the outcome? Number one, simply put, the Lord saved Israel. The Lord saved his people. The Lord said to Moses in verses 15 to 18, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. He gives them instructions, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Throughout the remainder of this passage, we will see how the Lord acted on behalf of Israel and saved them. We're reminded that this all occurs, it says in this passage, it talks about God's glory, right? It all occurs so that God may be glorified. Which if we go back to the very beginning, it's the reason that all things were created in the first place, that they would display the glory of God. For God to glorify Himself. We are an instrument of His glory. God is glorified in two ways here. He's glorified in Israel's deliverance, their redemption, their redeeming. And He's also glorified in executing His judgment against the wickedness and hard-heartedness of the Egyptians. In both ways, God is glorified. And so we come to our second point. We're going to dwell on this one for a little bit. The people witnessed the power of God. The people witnessed the power of God. Verses 19 to 20. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. Did you hear that? Okay, so if you'll remember last week, God's leading his people by cloud during the day and then a pillar of fire by night. Now it's saying that that thing is moved from out in front of them, from behind them. It went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night long. We get this picture of separation. Okay, The enemies of God's people being held back 
and God's people on this side. There's this separation, this withholding force of God. The people witness the power of God. Can you imagine God's presence now that has been leading them, now moving this covering that they've had going behind them as their enemies pursue them? The glory cloud that is, has led them thus far will now separate them from their enemies. The glory of God keeps the enemy of God's people at bay. And you get this picture in these these few verses of God shining his light on his people and the enemies of God are in the darkness. Separated. I can't help but focus on Jesus in this moment. Light and darkness, separation. If applying this to the work that Jesus has done on our behalf doesn't get you fired up, I'm not sure what can. Looking forward, this is what Jesus has secured for you at the cross. He stands between you and the schemes of this world. He stands between you and a life of purposeless sin. He stands between you and the lure of the evil one. And finally, his redemptive work stands between you and the wrath of God. He has turned away death from his people, and he's given us this new life. He has separated those things. Reading on, verses 21 to 29, if you look to your Bibles. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Can you imagine that? Just wall of water on either side. I'm walking through on dry ground. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into the panic. Clogging what? Their chariot wheels. Those mighty, powerful, man-made things that they had. God's like, I got this. So that they drove heavily. The Egyptians realized, once again, as if the ten plagues weren't enough, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Place yourself in this story. They were boxed in. But then the cloud and fire of God moves to go between the Egyptians and them. 
They look to their leader here, their representative, their Messiah, in a sense, Moses. What shall we do? He does as God commands. He stretches his hand, and the power of God, okay, not some sort of freak science experiment, but the power of God, our miraculous God, rushes the waters to the right and to the left. The people cross on dry ground. No hindrance, no obstacles. They move freely towards the freedom that only God could provide. Their enemies are still in pursuit. But that cloud is there. The glory of God weighs heavy on the enemies of God. And they sink under the weight of God's glory into the muck and mire and mud and their chariot wheels become clogged and chaos ensues. God commands Moses, stretch out your hand once again. This time his outstretched hand brings the death blow to Israel's enemies. The enemy is defeated by the very hand of God through his servant, Moses. One of my favorite preachers is obviously uh, Charles Spurgeon. Quote him often. And he used to always say when he was preaching from the Old Testament, he'd make a beeline to Jesus as soon as he can. So we're going to make a beeline to Jesus real quick. We have to see the power of God in, in the cross of Jesus at this point. We have to see the power of God there, that this is a picture of what is to come. This is a type and shadow of what Jesus will accomplish at the cross. Some 1,400 years later, Jesus would come. Hebrews says that Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Israel. His arms were stretched across the crossbeam of the tree. His outstretched arms provided deliverance for God's people once and for all. No longer are we boxed in with no hope, but rather we are given a path of redemption. As the seas parted for Israel to cross on dry land, so too as Jesus' arms were outstretched and he cried his last, Scripture tells us that, that the curtain, the veil in the temple that separated God's holiness from humanity was torn from top to bottom. That which separated humanity from true life had been removed. The way has been opened. The pathway cleared through the work of Jesus Christ. And hear this, and now, instead of outstretched arms on a cross, the Savior, Jesus, His arms are outstretched, and, and He's calling to you in embrace. Come to me, all who are weary and broken and hurting, and I will give you what? Rest. Instead of wrath, salvation. Instead of death, life. Instead of darkness, light. Jesus embraces us with his arms opened wide for all, the Bible says this, for all who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
back to Exodus. And just as the Egyptians thought they had won the battle, just at the moment that they thought the Israelites had no hope, God struck the death blow. Looking forward to Jesus, he was boxed in. All hope was lost as the nails were driven in his hands and feet. Satan surely at this moment was convinced that he had defeated Jesus. That he had won. The Savior's dead. But the nails were the death blow to the prince of darkness as promised in Genesis 3.15. The heel strike to our Savior was the crushing blow to the serpent's head. The nails that crucified our Savior finally and ultimately defeated Satan and sin. This passage reminds me of Paul's boast in Colossians 2.15. He's talking about the work of Christ on the cross, and he says this about Jesus. This is the Jesus that we worship here. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he did this, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The him there is Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus died, and in his death, the enemy was defeated. We don't worship a God who's dead, do we? Jesus conquered death by raising from the dead on the third day to new life. He plunged into the depths of the sea of death only to emerge with victory over sin and death. The power of God on display. The power of God on display in our risen, resurrected King Jesus. So we see this, point number three. Because of what God had done, the people feared the Lord, and it says they believed his servant. They, they feared the Lord and believed his servant, verses 30 to 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. I love that little succinct statement there, right? That little short, after all that's gone on, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The evidence was there. God won. There was no doubt. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and they responded in this way. The people feared the Lord. That's a good fear. Reverence. It says they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The people feared the Lord and believed his servant. They witnessed what God had done for them. They believed in him and they believed in his servant. Now we know earlier, we acknowledge this, that that we worship a better Moses. Jesus is a better Moses. And so we believe in a better servant, the servant savior that came, Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly in our place and died on a cross for our sins and rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. I call upon you this morning, believe in the servant, Jesus Christ. Believe in the servant of God. And lastly, they did this. Point number four. The people responded, and the only way that you could respond when God moves, they worshiped. Verses 32 to 
They worshipped God. The people responded in worship. I'm not going to read all of the song of Moses. I'd encourage you to read it this week, verses 1 to 21 in chapter 15. The first two verses gives us a, a glimpse of what this song entails. What else makes sense, right? What else makes sense when, when you realize all that God has done for you, that he's parted the sea and he's brought you through on dry ground and he's defeated your enemy? What else makes sense than to fall upon your knees before the Lord and worship and sing to him? It says, then, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has, hear this, he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Beautiful words. You see, God has done all the work. We just walk on that path that he has laid before us. Through Jesus, we are received into the kingdom of God through his finished work on the cross. How much more should we praise God? His arms are stretched wide open to embrace and receive you. And now we respond the way that God's people have always responded when God moves. We worship. We worship God. We sing His praises with thankful and glad hearts that he has won the victory for us. We've done nothing. We don't bring anything to the table but our broken, busted selves. And God embraces us and brings us in and saves us. And we respond by worshiping him. 